Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 18th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Icon Water Trails, begins shift to regional projects by Michael Crum. When grants from the Icon Water Trails $5 million Mid-American Regional Fund are announced this month, it will mark the next phase of development of projects that connect more than 80 sites along 150 miles of rivers and creeks in central Iowa. The $125 million initiative is being funded through a combination of a capital campaign and public dollars. One of those funding sources is the Mid-American Regional Fund, created by Mid-American Energy Company to provide funds to smaller regional projects outside of the Des Moines metro area. So far, much of the attention on Icon Water Trails has been on what could be considered signature projects, such as those on the Des Moines River in downtown Des Moines, that will create space and whitewater features for kayaking and surfing. But with the announcement this month of the first cycle of grants from the Mid-American Regional Fund, that focus will begin to better represent the regional nature of ICON water trails, said Maggie McClelland, director of ICON. It's giving us the regional tie-in, she said. From the beginning, a lot of news has come about the downtown site, understandably so, given the excitement of the whitewater features. But by creating the regional entity of Icon Water Trails, it's really allowing us to build out that regional network, creating those different river-run experiences from West Des Moines to Johnston, Bondurant, and Altoona. It's really creating that regional network and identity for water trails outside of the downtown pieces. It's allowed us to start shifting that focus to more of that regional viewpoint and regional perspective for water trails. McClelland said Icon Water Trails is strengthening regionalism in central Iowa. A lot of our municipal partners were taking this on as their own approach, but by creating this cohort of municipalities and partners that are brought into water trails and creating their own access points, it is really just strengthening the regional network that we have. So anybody that comes to use water trails will have the same experience no matter where they are on the water trails network. Things like maintenance and operations and regional marketing and promoting this as a full network rather than just attraction by attraction. So far, just over $70 million has been raised for the project. That includes a $25 million federal build grant, $15 million from the state's Water Infrastructure Fund, and a capital campaign that has raised nearly $30 million of its $33.5 million goal. The $5 million Mid-American Regional Fund will be an endowment that will include two funding cycles each year with maximum funding amounts per cycle of $125,000. Applications will be reviewed by a committee who will judge the applications on criteria that align with Icon Water Trail's mission and goals of economic development, safety, environmental conservation, tourism, and workforce attraction. 
We're looking for projects that align with those goals and be a funding resource for some of those projects to move forward that otherwise may not have been able to with limited resources, McClelland said. The announcement of the first round of awards from the fund was released after the deadline for this article's publication. Watch for the announcement on the Business Record website. Catherine Kuhnert, Vice President of Business and Community Development for MidAmerican Energy, said the MidAmerican Fund was created to ensure the success of regional projects. The only way this whole water trails piece works is if everyone has the ability to participate and be successful, she said. It is a regional amenity to support placemaking, and MidAmerican really wanted to highlight the fact it is more than just those downtown sites and to help get those smaller sites started and put an emphasis on regional and really elevate and lift up those other communities who have opportunities to be successful with their piece of it. Kuhnert said MidAmerican's regional fund will help connect Icon Water Trails and help make the regional vision a reality. Having this fund really allows for those dollars to be able to support those smaller projects that otherwise may be slower coming or not have the ability to even participate in Icon Water Trails. So we feel it supports the larger whole and reinforces the connectivity of all the communities in the region, she said. Kuhnert said she envisions the success of Icon Water Trails helping the region attract and retain top talent. We know when communities are successful, thriving, and vibrant, that in turn has an effect on the ability to retain our businesses and grow our businesses and attract new businesses. In order to have those businesses be successful, they have to have the workforce that goes with it, she said. So having the placemaking and the amenities to support those communities, you have to have those sorts of activities. Bondurant is one of the communities that submitted an application for the Mid-American Regional Fund in hopes of continuing to build on recreational tourism in the area. City Council Member Angela McKenzie, who is Bondurant's representative on the Icon Water Trails Board, said Icon Water Trails, quote, brings some depth to Iowa as a whole, end quote and blends together recreational activities to make the state a more interesting place to live and work. Bondurant City Administrator Marquita Oliver said the city has benefited from recreational tourism, and continued development of those opportunities under Icon Water Trails will help not only the city but the region as a whole. Building on regional and ecotourism is really smart, And to do it at the regional level and lift the whole region, it's good to build on that, she said. Mackenzie, who is also a real estate agent, said the projects being developed under ICON will help fill the need for amenities being sought by people looking for a place to live and work. That's what people are looking for, she said. It's not just the house, it's all the amenities. It's being able to walk to a park, or be able to get on your bike and go to a neighboring town. Oliver said Bondurant being a part of the network will help raise its profile and elevate its amenities. The Icon Water Trails funding will help the community move forward with its projects sooner rather than later, she said. For us, getting funding is important. 
Oliver said. We will move forward with the project eventually, but it will take longer and have to be broken into phases if funding isn't received. The project Bondurant is working on as part of Icon Water Trails is Eagle Park, which will include bioretention cells to capture and treat runoff, and native grasses, benches, trees, walking trails, and butterfly gardens. While the announcement of grants through the Mid-American Regional Fund marks the shift toward regional projects, work on some of those has already been completed, and work on the downtown Des Moines sites is moving forward, McClelland said. Bids for projects funded by the BUILD grant, Scott Avenue, Prospect Park, Birdland Marina, and Harriet Street, are due March 29th. McClelland said that there has been an increase in interested contractors since the bid period was extended, and that construction on those projects is still anticipated to begin this summer. The bid deadline was extended after no bids were received during the initial bidding cycle. Design work on the Fleur Drive and Center Street projects is beginning. There is a lot of momentum and progress happening here in downtown Des Moines, but it's also exciting that we see a lot of movement with our regional sites as well, McClelland said. Projects in West Des Moines and Johnston came online over the past year, and Polk County and Polk County Conservation have moved forward with improvements too, McClelland said. Some of those projects that have already gone online are the Boathouse on Raccoon River Park in West Des Moines, and the creation of a portage path from Blue Heron Lake to the river at that park. The city of Johnston has completed two of its three projects, including access points on Beaver Creek, areas McClelland described as great beginner points for users. We're slated to see a lot more of our regional projects come on over the next couple of years, and a lot of that is in large part because of this Mid-American Regional Fund, she said. Next, the On Leadership column. Let's keep making history. Ten Ways Women Are Advancing in the Workplace and in the Boardroom by Susanna DeBaca, President and CEO, Business Publications Corporation. When I was growing up, I had a, quote, working mother. That is what women who worked outside the home were called in the 60s and 70s. For a mom to have a career was not the norm and women in the workplace faced significant adversity and discrimination. Even more unusual was the fact that my best friend's mom was something called a board director. We didn't even know what that meant, but she wore suits to meetings and talked about the economy, and we knew she was a big deal. Whether they knew it or not, our mothers were pioneers for gender equity and role models for my friends and me, just as their mothers and others had been for them. Flash forward to 2022. Over the years, women have made tremendous advances in the workplace and in the boardroom, thanks to women who paved the way, as well as men who helped to change culture and championed the status of women. While we still have far to go to achieve gender equality, During Women's History Month, it is especially important to highlight the positive changes that have occurred. Here are 10 ways women are advancing in the workplace and in the boardroom. 
In the last five years, women in the U.S. have advanced at every leadership level in the workplace, according to McKinsey & Company's Women in the Workplace 2021 study. That includes women in director, vice president, senior vice president, and C-suite roles. However, women of color are not advancing at the same rate and have C-suite representation of only 4% compared with 20% for white women. Number two, despite the stresses of the pandemic, women are doing more to support teams and advance diversity, equity, and inclusivity than their male counterparts, says the same McKinsey study, adding that women leaders with traditionally marginalized identities are twice as likely to focus on DEI over and above their formal responsibilities. Unfortunately, the report indicates that these efforts are not always recognized or valued. Number three, the multiplier effect is working. When there is one woman in the C-suite, there is a correlation of three women in senior management roles, says the Deloitte Within Reach 2021 study. Despite this effect, only 8.2% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, according to the 2021 Women CEOs in America report. Number four, the wage gap is narrowing for younger women. According to the Pew Research Center, women ages 25 to 34 earned 93 cents for every dollar a male in the same demographic earned, higher than the still significant 84 cent level for women overall. Number five, 100% of S&P 500 boards now have female board representation of at least one woman compared with 91% 10 years ago, reports Spencer Stewart's 2021 board index. Number six, women make up 30.6% of all S&P board seats as of 2021, an increase of nine percentage points from 2017, the year that the hashtag MeToo movement raised awareness of harassment challenges faced by a multitude of women, according to that same index. Unfortunately, while white women gained the most seats, black, Hispanic, and Asian women represent only around 7% of Fortune 500 companies, according to a 2021 study by the Alliance for Board Diversity and Deloitte. Number seven, at a global level, more women are joining corporate boards, says the Deloitte report. The global average of women on boards is 19.4%, up 2.8 points from the last report in 2019. Number eight, board diversity in the U.S. is also on the rise, according to the Deloitte report, with 72% of new independent directors from historically underrepresented groups in 2021. Number nine, companies with women CEOs tend to have the most diverse boards with 33.5% women versus the 19.4% average, according to a 2021 Corporate Women Directors International survey. And number 10, 
gender parity in the workplace and boardroom is within reach. According to the Inside the Public Company Boardroom 2021 report, if the trends we are seeing now continue, board representation in the U.S. will be 50% female by 2035. At a global level, the Deloitte report indicates that if representation of women continues at the same pace, we will have gender parity on boards by 2045. Despite these gains, most studies emphasize significant recent declines in the overall status of women in the workplace. Continued discrimination, lack of recognition and allyship, and challenges with balancing responsibilities between home and work continue to hold women back, create stress and burnout, and are contributing to a mass exodus of women from the workforce. This is especially true for women of color, women with different abilities, or those who are members of the LGBTQ community. And while women have made recent gains in the boardroom, the average tenure on a corporate board is still less than men's, and board leadership roles are less often held by women. We celebrate our advancements, knowing that women and men have forged ahead to create change and further gender equity, but at the same time acknowledge that there is work to be done and changes that must be made. It will take all of us to create a more equitable world of work for women and others across the world and here in the U.S. Now turning to the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Study looks at needs of DSM workforce as companies navigate return to office strategies by Michael Crum. Employees want to maintain their hybrid, remote work environment and the flexibility it offers, according to the Greater Des Moines Partnership's Workforce Trends and Occupancy Study, released March 8th. The study is the result of a collaboration among the partnership, business management consulting firm Baton Global, and software company Rework. The conversation about the need to conduct a survey to learn more about the behaviors and needs of both employers and employees navigating the return-to-office journey began in December. More than 11,000 invitations to participate were sent to knowledge workers or those in information technology fields. The response rate was nearly 50%, well above the typical response rate of between 10 and 20%, said Matthew Mitchell, a partner with Baton Global. Companies of all sizes have been working on their plans to return to the office after working remotely for two years because of the coronavirus pandemic. The study addressed what employees want and conversely what employers prefer for their future workforce. The results were broken down into five insights for the future of work in the greater Des Moines region and five insights for the future of downtown Des Moines. Maybe the most notable feedback received was that participants indicated they wanted to continue the flexibility that remote work offers. According to the study, only 15% of an employee's time was spent working from home before the pandemic. 
Now it is 60%, and participants said they would like that to continue. By comparison, executives who took the survey preferred that employees spend 60% of their time working in the office and only 40% at home. It reinforces the notion that hybrid work is here to stay, said Mitchell, who is also an associate professor of business and strategy at Drake University. We've trained our leaders, we've trained our workers how to be effective and productive in a hybrid environment, and employers are going to have to determine how they approach this shift and manage through that, he said. The survey also found that employees who participated placed the highest value on activities that are more complex, collaborative, and judgment-based. Those include analyzing, programming, coaching, and designing. A low priority was placed on lengthy meetings, which were viewed as less productive. Meetings, while on their list of valuable activities, ranked high on time spent. This is super important as we peer into the hearts and minds of these workers and really direct the conversation to what they value most, but more specifically what they think is going to be most directly supportive of their individual goals and their organizational goals, Mitchell said. According to the survey, salary, work-life balance, and employee benefits are the critical components that make an employee feel valued. Participants also indicated that they feel more teamwork and innovation will be necessary for companies to achieve their goals in the future. John Economos, a consultant with Baton Global, said the need for greater teamwork and innovation can be achieved while meeting the desire by employees to continue working from home. The core topic or assumption to unpack or challenge is, Does collaboration mean we have to be in the same room, he said? I think what our knowledge workers are saying is no. Employers are going to have to determine how they handle this general shift, thinking about pre-pandemic levels versus their signaling for the future, but how they're going to handle this divergence within their own ranks, he said. Economos said there are more best practices that can be shared among organizations. I think it's that belief that how do we collaborate when I can't see you and I can't touch you and see your body language, and we've had that experiment over the past couple of years, he said. Tiffany Toshek, Chief Operations Officer at the Partnership, said the study results show there is an opportunity to think differently. We used to create these memorable experiences off-site for retreats and having collaborative conversations outside of the office, and there is an opportunity for us now to rethink that and reshape that, she said. When it comes to addressing the future of downtown Des Moines, survey participants said cultural events, socialization, and outdoor recreation are priorities. It also found that priorities differed by generation. People in their 20s are using downtown more than anyone else, while people 50 and older care most about parking, and those 60 and over place a priority on amenities such as shopping and services that are available. The survey also found that 86% of participants 
said they would use downtown more with continued improvements, which Toshik said was very exciting and the direction we are headed. 50% of those responding said greater walkability was needed, while 32% said the mix of walking versus driving is ideal. The survey also indicated there is a need to look at downtown traffic patterns, Toshik said. We have an opportunity to move forward with two-way streets, and that is something this study reinforces, that there is a need and desire to do so, she said. The partnership held a major employer roundtable where the results were shared, with the results also being shared with partnership stakeholders and investors. Toshek said she hopes the survey results will be used by organizations to customize their own plans. It's one thing to have data, but it's another to be able to take that data and put it into action, she said. That's part of the beauty of this, is we will have an actionable plan moving forward, and it will be designed in a way that businesses can help customize for their own business. Toshek said the world has changed and it will continue to evolve, and that creates opportunities as the region looks to build its workforce. I think part of this macro approach here is understanding that because this is unique to DSM and specific to downtown, this sets up our community to have an action plan to move forward and helps set us apart from our competitors as we're looking to attract talent, she said. We're going to have the playbook because we know how our workforce feels, what they need to do their best work. So this is a game changer for us. The next article, Meet Tiffany Cannon by Emily Barsky. It's our goal with Fearless this year to get out across the state and meet folks who are working to empower Iowa women. We know there are so many who are passionate about women's and gender issues, and we want to meet you and tell your stories. While in the Quad Cities meeting women leaders for Fearless, we stopped by Oh So Sweet by Tiffany. Owner Tiffany Cannon talked with Emily Kestel and me about advice for other women business owners. The store will have been open for eight years coming up in June, and Cannon operated out of her home for three years before that. She was often told the age-old adage, fake it until you make it, and it's always helped her. Is that bad? She said with a laugh. But it's the truth, she said, and her business has empowered her in all other areas of life. The only thing holding you back is yourself, she said. As far as business growth, she said how big or how small you want your business to be is completely on the business owner. Anything from making a bigger lunch menu to deciding to offer soup or deciding you've outgrown your space is all within your court as an entrepreneur. It's all up to me at the end of the day, she said. Thanks for having us, Tiffany. In the marketing column, Drew McClellan's article, Navigating Social Media During a Long-Term Crisis. When the world experiences a short-term crisis, like a storm or a school shooting, it's easy to know what to do. 
You mute your social media marketing for a few days out of respect for the situation and how people are responding to it. But what's the proper etiquette when the crisis or disaster is not going to wrap up in a few days? The invasion of Ukraine by Russia is showing all the signs of being a long conflict with new events and news coming from that region of the world every day. Should you just go dark until it's resolved? There is no definitive right answer to this question, but I do believe there are best practices and practical considerations we should all keep in mind as we navigate this situation with our brand. In some ways, it's the ideal time to be active online. People are generally more active on social during a crisis because they're checking their news sources more often. But how do you engage in a way that feels respectful to the situation and still helps you accomplish your marketing goals? No matter what you decide to do, at the very least, you need to make sure your brand is not being insensitive to the reality of the day. Double check that your existing marketing platforms, like your website, do not have copy or imagery that would suggest you're being thoughtless about the circumstance. If you're running advertising, double-check that there's no room for interpretation or misunderstanding. After you do that, you should turn your attention to your social media posts and placements. If you use any sort of automated tool to share social posts across platforms, you'll want to consider pausing that automation, since you aren't actively monitoring all of the content. This is a time to be very intentional about what you share or don't share. For many brands, social media is a pivotal channel within their marketing mix. Unfortunately, the crisis in Ukraine is likely to go on for some time. Halting all activity for a long period may have a significant impact. The key to handling this well, meaning to avoid backlash that tarnishes your brand, embarrasses your employees or customers, etc., is active management and erring on the side of being a tad oversensitive. You absolutely can still post and even sell online, but you need to remember where your audience's heads and hearts are in the moment. Double-check your copy, calls to actions, and even your tone to make sure it will play well in the current environment. Be mindful of your frequency, and if you're inclined to take a stand or comment on the world event, do so with respect for the wide range of people you are probably talking to at any given moment. If you do comment on what's going on, be sure you are monitoring your account for comments or reactions. You don't want to let those sit for too long without a response. Use this time to double down on engaging with your audience. Everyone is probably feeling the tension of the day, and this is the moment to be more human, not less. When the world feels uncertain or scary, we all hunger for more connection. This is a wonderful time to let the human side of your brand shine. Remember that people are hypersensitive right now, so you also need to temper your reactions to any comments or responses you get. The watchwords when posting during crisis are grace and patience. Give yourself and your audience 
plenty of both. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 18th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. The Elbert Files, Dave Elbert's column. What we don't know. Quote, we don't know what we don't know, end quote. That's the crux of a recent essay by Jonathan Wilson in the Des Moines Register. Wilson, a longtime Des Moines lawyer and former school board member, said the don't know principle, combined with the adage, quote, you can't teach what you don't know, end quote, explains how a civilization devolves and essentially dumbs down the citizenry. Think about it. If we quit teaching history, science, and critical thinking skills, wouldn't it resolve many of the policy issues facing this year's legislature? Of course, it would also drive Iowa's once-proud system of public schools even farther into the ground. But who would be around to notice if we don't know what we don't know? The same logic applies to the massive tax cuts Republicans recently approved and signed into law. The speed with which they moved was astounding. In the past, thoughtful lawmakers formed outside committees and held extensive hearings before making changes to complex tax policy. The process took months, sometimes years. It was designed to minimize surprises down the road by incorporating a broad range of opinions and information. Sometimes it resulted in no meaningful changes. But that was okay because the system discarded untested and questionable proposals. As near as I can tell, the only public discussion about this year's tax cuts was in the form of vague campaign promises, which always sound good during election season. This year, Republican lawmakers shut down any meaningful discussion, which kept the rest of us from even being able to know what we do not know. One example is the fiscal note that Iowa's nonpartisan legislative services agency prepared for the proposed changes. The agency's fiscal notes are designed to provide reasonable summations of the fiscal impact that changes could have on state finances. This year, because of the speed at which the tax cuts moved, the fiscal note was much shorter than similar notes have been in the past. But there was still enough to get a sense of the danger when you do the math. According to LSA, the tax cuts will result in income decreases in future years, ranging from $236 million in 2023 to $1.9 billion in 2028 when all of the cuts are implemented. That's a total decrease of $6.6 billion over the next six years. Today, the state government is sitting on a $2 billion surplus, but it won't last long at that rate. Another way to look at it is that the state government will soon need to either cut spending by roughly 20% or find new revenue sources to offset the lost income. Governor Kim Reynolds and other Republicans say the lost revenue will be made up by economic growth inspired by the tax cuts. 
Which brings us to another thing we either don't know or choose to ignore. Concentrating the bulk of income tax cuts in high-income brackets has not, in the past, spurred growth, and there is no reason to think it will now. That's the conclusion of retired Iowa Department of Revenue Manager and analyst Mike Lipsman, who had a close-up view of state finances for decades. The bulk of future state budget cuts will mean significantly less money for public schools because education is the largest component of state finances. In a recent unpublished article, Lipsman noted the damage that has already occurred to education, including the fact that Iowa's prized leadership in public education fell to number 24 in U.S. News' 2021 annual ranking of public schools. He added that funding for Iowa's region institutions, which include our three public universities, peaked at $776 million in 2009 and, quote, dropped 21% to $613 million by 2021, end quote. Also, Lipsman reported that at a time when emerging technologies are essential, the number of full-time science and engineering graduate students at Iowa State University and the University of Iowa fell by more than 20% between 2010 and 2019. That's just some of what we don't know about the tax cuts that include Iowa's move to a 3.9% flat tax. Our next story is from the Business Record website. Retirees, farmers, will reap big benefits from Iowa's new tax law. Lower corporate tax rate likely to be triggered, reach 5.5% by end of decade. By Joe Gardias, published Tuesday, March 15th. If there is only one thing that Iowa Republicans and Democrats can agree on regarding the sweeping new state income tax legislation that goes into effect next year, perhaps it is this. The tax cut package represents really big changes from the old familiar tax system that Iowans have known for decades. From the standpoint of a seasoned professional tax preparer, the changes are, quote, really huge, said Joe Christen, a tax partner with Ide Bailey in Des Moines. I started in the business in the 80s, Christen said. If somebody who was Rip Van preparer went to sleep in about 1980 and woke up now, he would be able to pick up an Iowa tax return and it would look very familiar. Now, this is a very dramatic change and it's nothing, it's like nothing that has been enacted in decades in Iowa, he said. Craig Paulson, director of the Iowa Department of Revenue, said, quote, from my perspective, this is the most exciting and the largest and most impactful tax bill that I've ever seen, and I've been part of state government for nearly 20 years, end quote. Signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds on March 1st, House File 2317, titled Income Tax Reduction and Exemptions, represents an effort to return several billion dollars of taxes the state has, quote, over-collected from Iowa residents and businesses, said Senator Jack Whitber, Republican Senate Majority Leader, as quoted in February 
in a February article in Stateline, an initiative of the Pew Charitable Trusts. The reductions will help Iowa compete with other states, Whitver said. The competition is fierce for citizens and for jobs, and we want to make sure that Iowa is looked at as a pro-growth state, he said. The tax cuts are seen as a major win by the Iowa chapter of the National Federation of Independent Business, whose top issue has been tax reform. Income tax reform is the best way to get money back into the hands of our small business owners and their employees, Matt Everson, NFIB state director in Iowa, said in a recent statement. Iowa small business owners have voiced and continue to voice one of their top concerns, our burdensome tax code, and specifically the income tax rates, which are still one of the highest in the country, he said. Public policy group Common Good Iowa has been among the most vocal opponents of the tax cuts, as reflected in a recent statement by the organization's executive director, Ann Disher. Quote, Child care, clean water, mental health services are all threatened by a tax cut that will skew our tax system further in favor of the wealthy, end quote. Disher wrote this in response to Governor Reynolds' response to the recent State of the Union message, in which Reynolds touted the tax provision she had signed earlier that day. Our tax code was already upside down, said Disher, with the poorest Iowans paying more of their income in taxes than the top 1%. This tax cut will make inequality, including racial inequality, worse. Almost half the tax cut will go to the richest 5% of taxpayers, who will see an average cut of over $8,000. The richest 1% get over $23,000, she said. Michael Lipsman, an economic policy researcher who previously led the Iowa Department of Revenue's Tax Research and Program Analysis section for 11 years, also voiced concerns about the revenue adequacy and stability. He argues that the state needs to be further investing in education and other public and social services, which he said are already woefully underfunded. Paulson said that while Iowa looked at what other states have done regarding tax reform, Iowa's legislation reflects input that Reynolds received from talking to taxpayers in meetings across the state. He said that great care was taken to ensure that no Iowans will pay more state income taxes under the new law. We ran model after model to make sure that it correctly treated Iowans, Paulson said. There's absolutely no Iowan that gets a tax increase in this. None. Regardless of some of of the gobbledygook that was being reported early on, which was just flat wrong. There are no Iowans that get a tax increase. Any Iowan who pays taxes gets a tax cut in this. She, the governor, invested an incredible amount of time into making sure that it correctly served Iowans, and I think the General Assembly could speak for themselves, but they went through it with a fine-tooth comb, he said. Here is a summary of the major provisions of the legislation and their impact. Over the next four years, 
Iowa's tax structure will be transformed from a multi-bracket system with a maximum individual tax rate of 8.53% to a one-bracket flat tax system where all individual taxpayers who earn more than the net income threshold will pay a rate of 3.9% on their taxable income. Individuals or heads of household with less than $9,000 of income and couples with less than $13,500 in taxable income are exempt from filing. For married couples over 65, the low-income exemption is $32,000. The legislation also establishes revenue triggers that, if met, will begin ratcheting down Iowa's corporate tax rate beginning as early as next year. The bill's goal is to reach a flat tax of 5.5% on all corporate income to be phased in over several years. The trigger? If the annual corporate tax collected exceeds $700 million, the percentage by which that amount is exceeded will be used to determine a percentage to lower the top tax rate until the tax rate is lowered to a single rate of 5.5%. If the corporate tax cut goes into effect next year, it will trim an estimated $19.6 million in corporate income from taxation in 2023, with that amount increasing each year. By fiscal year 2028, the annual reduction in corporate income tax collected is estimated at $229.4 million, less than the amount to be collected this fiscal year, which is projected to total $780 million. On a percentage basis, that means Iowa corporations could be paying 30% less in taxes in 2028 than they are currently paying. Another major change is that Iowa will cease taxing all sources of retirement income for people 55 or older or who are disabled beginning next year. Under current law, the first $6,000 of retirement income of Iowa seniors is excluded from Iowa income taxes. For married couples, the exclusion is up to $12,000 of their joint retirement income. According to the fiscal note prepared by the Legislative Services Agency on the tax legislation, the retirement exemption will exclude nearly $180 million of retirees' income from state tax next year, a figure that will increase to more than $350 million in 2024 and then increase gradually through 2028. Additionally, all income that retired Iowa farmers who are 55-plus receive from leasing their farmland becomes tax-exempt beginning next year. The Iowa Department of Revenue estimates that 1,295 returns will qualify each year for the new exemption, with combined annual farm lease income of $37.8 million dollars or about $29,157 annually in non-taxable income to those retired farmers. Considering the new retiree and farmer exemptions, the tax package removes from the tax rolls approximately 295,000 Iowans who, will, who now will pay no state income tax on those income sources, Paulson said. <laughs> 
The legislation also sweetens the tax exemption provisions for farmers on capital gains of farm property as well as capital gains exemptions on the sale of livestock. The department projects that an additional 948 farmers will benefit annually from the new property capital gains exemption, giving them a total of $113 million in annual tax-exempt income, an average of $119,198 per farm. While the livestock gains exemption will benefit 230 more farmers to the tune of $25.7 million annually. For Iowans who are employee owners in qualified corporations, the new law also phases in an exemption of capital gains earned through the sale or exchange of their stock that they acquired while working for the company. Beginning next year, one-third of qualified capital gains will be exempt from individual income tax, increasing to two-thirds in 2024, and then fully exempt beginning in 2025. There are also changes in eligibility for the Research Activities Credit and other state tax credits that collectively will raise new revenue by creating new limitations on credits. Together, those changes are expected to begin adding new revenue of approximately $13.5 million to the state's coffers in fiscal 2024, increasing to about $50 million more revenue by fiscal 2028. Looked at from a fairness perspective, Kristen, the tax partner with Ide Bailey, said he would have favored reducing the overall tax rate further by eliminating many of the carve-out provisions that are part of the state tax law. Instead, the legislation kept most of the existing carve-outs and expanded some of them, the largest being the new exemptions for retirement income and for expanded farmer exclusions. If you look at the numbers, retired people have higher net worth than young working people, Kristen said, noting that his comments represent his personal views, not those of his firm. From my own kids, I know what young people are making coming out of school and how hard it is, he said. It's hard to argue that, in general, retired people should have a special preference of all their income being excluded. People might say, well, this encourages retirees to stay in the state. But lower rates do that too. And then you can lower everybody's rates more. You didn't have to carve that out. But now that the legislature has done it, I can't imagine politically that they'll ever be able to get that revenue back. And that means that someday in the future, when the state needs to raise taxes for some reason, It's going to hit the people who are left in the tax system harder because you've carved out this big chunk of people, he said. Kristen said that overall he's very much in favor of the lower rates. I think low rates cure a lot of sins and that even if some taxpayers are unfairly favored, low rates reduce the unfairness because people who don't get the special breaks are screwed a little less he said. But it would still be better to bring rates down more and tax everybody more equitably. Kristen said the legislation provides a terrific incentive for people to increase their retirement savings, 
because the non-taxability of retirement income means that state income tax on those retirement savings isn't just deferred, it's eliminated. So that's probably the most immediate thing, he said. It's a lot easier now to talk somebody into an IRA or a SEP contribution or setting up a pension plan than it would have been before this. Michael Lipsman, the former state tax research manager, outlined numerous concerns about the legislation to the business record. In 2004, Lipsman conducted a study while working for the Iowa Department of Revenue that evaluated the effects of tax cuts enacted by the legislature in 1997-98. to He noted that his research found that the tax cuts did not stimulate economic growth in the state, but instead appeared to have reduced the rate of non-farm personal income in the state by 3.6% by, by 2002, which before the tax cuts had been consistently growing in line with national income trends. Among the reasons for the past tax cuts not generating the expected economic growth, Lipsman said, was that high-income Iowans received the bulk of the benefits of the capital gains and pension income exclusions that were inactive, with much of that in turn likely invested outside of Iowa. Also, state and local government employment in Iowa decreased by 16% in that period, which likely depressed personal income growth because most state and personal income spending occurs within the state. Lipsman said a critical factor being ignored with the newly enacted tax cuts is, quote, the likelihood that much of the tax savings from the proposed individual and corporate income tax cuts will flow out of Iowa, end quote. In response to these arguments, Paulson acknowledged that leakage out of state is occurring, but said that it's happening due to Iowa's high corporate tax rate. Currently, Iowa has the sixth highest corporate tax rate among all states, he said. So if you are a corporation that operates in multiple states and you have the ability to legitimately and legally source your income in one state or another, there are only five states that you chose Iowa ahead of. Once we get to 5.5%, we're in like the top 15, he said. And so I think that leakage is going to go down significantly. Paulson said he is confident from extensive modeling conducted by his department that the annual budget carryover plus future revenue surpluses and money from the Taxpayer Relief Fund will enable the plan to comfortably cash flow. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, March 18th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
Exploring Science and the Sea To keep tabs on the health of whales, marine biologists sometimes catch the snot from the whale's blowholes, a mixture of water, mucus, and other substances. And in recent years, they've found a new way to catch it, with drones. The small, remote-controlled vehicles fly above a whale and wait for it to clear its lungs. A plate or dish then catches some of the material expelled through the blowhole. Biologists check the blow for the whale's DNA, hormones, algae, bacteria, and other substances. That's one of several ways in which drones are contributing to marine research. They can collect samples or snap pictures for a fraction of the cost of more conventional techniques and allow researchers to keep an eye on marine critters without spooking them. One project uses drones to study waves and their interaction with the atmosphere, while another uses them to count gray seals on the coasts of New England and Canada. And yet another project used drones to study olive ridley sea turtles in Costa Rica. Researchers wanted to study the nesting behavior of these rare creatures. The drones revealed that the turtles congregated in groups that were a good bit larger than expected. Drones still aren't perfect tools. Small ones have limited range and payloads, while big ones can be expensive. And there are restrictions on how and where they can be flown. Even so, they can give scientists a bird's eye view of the oceans and coasts and help them with such icky tasks as catching whale snot. Science in the Sea, a production of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, is on the web at scienceinthesea.org. I'm Holly Brawley.